Welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una. And I am a wilted crypto. Today, we are going into one of Family Ties and Clarice Lispector's most respected short stories, if not the most important short story from Clarice Lispector, and that is The Imitation of the Rose. And as always, we start off publication information. Clarice Respector said that this was originally finished in 1955, but it was not published until 1960 in the Senior Magazine and the collection of Family Ties. Born in the Ukraine, but identified and kind of claimed by Brazil, she would definitely say that she is a Brazilian writer. Clarice spent much of her life as an ambassador's wife, traveling around the world, feeling rather lonely and even disconnected, arguably. And she had her first child at 48 and actually had a failed pregnancy in 51 that will come up in the plot discussion here. But as always, she claims that she was a mother before she was a writer. I think we can see that in a lot of her work, right? Where a lot of this is playing into her personal life and she's writing what she knows is going to come through, especially in this story. In this story, we have some free indirect discourse. I always enjoy it when we have authors that do this because we've had it from Joyce. It's just something that's very interesting where you sometimes have the main character's voice come through the narrator, where sometimes you're the narrator and sometimes it's the main character speaking through the narrator. And that kind of always causes you to kind of question or, or just dive a little bit deeper into the main character's mind, which is what we get here. We're going to have to talk about some themes of duality as well as some of the gender differences in the story as well. The gender roles here is, is very, very important to talk about as we go through the plot of this piece. All right, so for plot... Laura was recently released by doctors for an undisclosed issue. She was, quote, not well, and told by the male doctors to avoid milk and anxiety. Laura, a quiet housewife, soon found satisfaction in cleaning the house and performing local chores for her husband, Armando. Their friends, Carlota and her husband, Joao, were received, and Laura was happy to see Armando could talk man-to-man -man with Joao. I'm sorry about pronunciations. However, Laura was the opposite of Carlota, who was loud and ambitious and never saw danger, while Laura was always cautious and internal. Sometimes Laura would mess up drawers just to tidy them again. She admired the roses in the house and thought about giving one of them to her friend. However, she had reservations, as they were hers. So little things found their way into her possession. She had only bought them as a result of the florist insisting as such, but they were hers, slipping off into a daydream. Her husband returns home, and she fails to communicate with him. End plot. Reminds me of uh, Yellow Wallpaper, right? Kind of feel like she's being gaslighting into this. Yeah, I think we're kind of... The, the wording in the Yellow Wallpaper is definitely more aggressive, right? Where, where it's very clear that the man is painted as the villain... I don't know if if Clarice Lispector, while she's she's got violent feelings behind this, I don't know if I would ascribe her to saying that she blames the man completely for this. I, I think let's let's get into this a little bit because because we got a lot of different clues about Laura to begin with story with right. We got yeah, she was released. Agreed. She got she was released from seeing the doctor. She's avoiding milk, which is a real thing that they say to avoid milk when you have when you're trying to reduce anxiety. She was happy to fulfill her views and her duties in this relationship and was disappointed that she couldn't have children. You mentioned earlier that this had been finished as early as 1955, but you can't forget that in Clarice's real life in 1951, she had just written a letter to her sister about a failed pregnancy that she just had. 
Yeah, I think the difference here between Yellow Wallpaper and uh, this story is that Laura is taking some responsibility for what's happening in her life. I agree. I think what you see is a very complicated situation for Laura because all of these things that are happening, right? She's supposed to reduce her anxiety, you know? Well, we got that line that the doctor was indeed a male. She comes home to her husband and her husband is even putting these roles onto her about, you know, well, what would I do with a ballerina, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, and then yeah. most interesting was the florist because I was like, oh, was the florist male or female? Like I'm kind of like, you know, these, these things happen in threes with Clarice, right? Threes, fives, and sevens. And we have the quote, they were small wild roses that she had bought at the farmer's market that morning, partly because the man had been so insistent, partly out of daring. So uh, here we have three examples of men putting these structures onto Laura. And I think that kind of goes to your yellow wallpaper commentary of these are structures defined by the, the opposite gender, right? Kind of not taking into consideration what she wants. Her role is one of servitude for them, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think this relationship between her and these men really shows how confined she is to that role, but she seems to be okay with it as well in some regards. And she likes when she's able to break free, but then she's very complacent to move right back to where she was. She doesn't continue on that path. Well, and we have quotes, too, about how they're talking about Mars and about how the people from Mars are perfect. And it's very well known that Mars is typically representative and indicative of masculinity. So in this story where structures are being put onto her, and we're talking about these structures being perfect, you know, being from Mars, I think it's kind of a very aggressive stance from Lespector. Yeah, I think it's very obvious that Lespector is setting the norms for these these gender identities or these gender roles, uh, and that Laura is not going to question them. Would anyone see in the tiniest offended speck the lack of the children she'd never had? And I wonder, did you tie, did you associate her, they never define this illness, why she's coming back from the doctor, why she has anxiety. Did you tie her anxiety and her willingness to placate the male gender because of this line right here where she'd never been able to have children. Do you think this is a postpartum conversation potentially? Maybe it's her seeing herself as a failure as a woman that she thought that that's part of my contribution to this relationship is the man is going to provide and I'm going to provide him with children and she's not able to accomplish that. So she's feeling as a failure. And she has those quotes, it was her own fault because she didn't command respect. So she holds herself responsible to that regard as well. Yeah, and usually what this is being painted as is that that is kind of your domain and that's what your uh, responsibility is. That is kind of, you know, you're, you're painted this certain way and now she doesn't even have that to hold on to. Well, this all, this whole setup, okay, I don't think... What we're talking about right now isn't the point of this. I think we're we're setting up all of the dominoes to be tipped over, leading us towards this rose, right? The rose is what the story's named after, the imitation of Christ, the imitation of the rose. We're heading towards this moment where she's given an opportunity to do something with this rose. What was your takeaway of, of this object? 
Yeah, when reading this, I feel like that the rose represented her freedom and her freedom of choices that she was going to be able to make, that she was going to be able to give this away because she doesn't have any other really freedoms in her life. Why would her freedom be thorny? <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> well, I mean, they talked about the thor the thorns of the stem and how it's beautiful, but it's also dangerous. Yeah, true. I guess she feels like maybe the choices that she's going to make in life uh, could propose a danger uh, to herself, uh, to her family. See, to me, this, I mean, this is totally subjective when we're talking about this, right? Because Lispector doesn't use symbols, symbology in a traditional sense. She's kind of creating her own world. She's marching to this beat of her own drum. And I think that's what just makes her so fantastic. And it really allows the reader to inject their, their themselves into it. Maybe she wouldn't like it. <laughs> She'd want us to feel a certain way. But from what I've seen in, in conversations with Lispector, everyone just kind of goes a different direction. And that's okay. My direction is... You know, when we talk about, okay, so your wife, when she works with the DSM classifications, that's a structure that's put onto you, right? And sometimes those can be very powerful when you say you have to act this way or you have to be this certain way. That's why you even have in clinical trials and studies of medical, uh, you know, medicines, they have those placebos, right? Why do you have placebos? Let's see if it actually is working or not, or if it's just people mind over matter. Exactly, because the mind over matter is a big thing, right? And if you tell someone, act this way, or you should stop being this way, sometimes that's all you can focus on, right? And to me, what I'm seeing Laura go through in this you know, free, indirect speech, we're entering her mind, she's constantly just being pitted against all these different options, and you know, her decision to want to have the child with Armando, perhaps, she might decide to want the child, but it's not in her control to actually have the child as we saw in this situation, right? Her, her, her inability to have the, the children. To me, the rose represented more of decisions. The reason she didn't want to give away the rose is because that was one of the few decisions that she had control over in her life. If she gave away her ability to make decisions, what does she have left? And that's why she, she just grasps onto it with, with the last bit of strength that she has. And to me, decisions to the point of the rose being both beautiful and violent and, and protective over itself with thorns, isn't that true of decisions too? These choices can lead you towards beautiful options. It can lead you down perilous paths like the thorn and stuff like that. The reason Laura wanted to hold on is because it was the only thing that was hers. It was her choice. Yeah, so I think like kind of two things here real quick is that uh, I think that our decisions define us, and this is going to be a defining moment in her life of whether she's going to hold on to that power, as you said, or whether she's going to give it away like she has her entire life to all of these men in the story, and she'd be giving it away to a woman, which is a very different than what has happened to her entire life. And I think that a lot of people might interpret it, and I think a lot of people might interpret the rose as, you know, kind of a symbology for a child itself, but uh, I, I like your idea much better. Well, she has those quotes where she says stuff like, no longer that terrible independence. She's painting independence as terrible, right? She has some joy in the dependence that she has. 
and you can you can hear that in some people and it doesn't have to be just women men men can be this way too where they're they're happy to be reliant upon the wife and the wife sometimes is happy to be reliant upon the husband there's something about taking away a choice taking away that independence that is actually kind of liberating and i think we're getting to see that with laura a little bit here it talks she talks about how it makes her feel superhuman how she's trading in her youth her energy and you got to remember divorce wasn't legal in until 1977 in brazil so the choice to get married as a woman was very long lasting there too, where you were kind of legally stuck in this marriage unless you shipped yourself off to Uruguay, like like the Las Vegas of, of South America to get married. So she almost is is worried about being stuck in, in, in this perpetual state and is okay with that in a sense too. You can be worried about something and be okay with it at the same time. And that's what I like about Lispector is that she's able to bring these really complex situations and somehow not use words, but still push me towards this, this moment of a very complex feeling that we have. Yeah. So two things on that. I think that this is one of those unique cases where the rose isn't what a traditional rose would mean in a story, right? Where you always right. point out what the flowers and trees and everything mean. That's not going to happen in this case. And I think the other thing is that we see her relationship with this rose. But as you said, the relationship with all of these men and this woman in this story is that there's they're, they're all kind of like opposite of her, right? Is they're mm-hmm. all kind of go-getters. And she is somebody that's very, very, you know submissive and you know kind of a recluse where they're all alphas and going and getting it and he's the man and gets to have a man-to-man talk and she is not that she is very different than all the other characters in the story she was thick unlike a ballerina and armando was (laughs) was was tall and thin like even her relationship with armando was opposites yeah we really see this here in the language of the story when you have the conversations between the husband and the wife here and i quote and then the front door slammed then the front door slammed and you see this repetitive almost dual nature like we see between these two individuals right Um, and then then the stories in the story is called the imitation of the rose and the imitation of christ is mentioned twice yeah, we have a quote to go with that, right? She was going to smile so he could at least wipe that anxious suspense off his face. So she was going to smile so he'd once again know that there would never again be any danger of his getting home too late. I really like that one. Yeah, I think the Spectre is very clearly trying to pit two things against each other. But here's the difference. When we see other major writers do this, right, we... we that's all a portrait of the artist was, right? Sticking two people between two things. You're one of your favorite writers of all time, Alexander Pushkin. Loves taking a character, inserting them in, into polar opposites with something else, right? That's just something that that they love to do. However, the point, and even Dostoevsky did this, right, with, with Crime and Punishment, their points are the two polar options that you could choose, which which one are you going to go with, right? I don't think that's the case with Lespector. I think instead she's taking these two opposites and saying they're both wrong. We live in the gray. We live in the middle. And that's part of why I think Lispector is so beautiful is, is both of these can be true, but you, you are living in the middle. You are not actually living at these poles. You don't ever see true evil or true good. You live in the in-between where both exist together. 
Yeah, and I think that comes back down to the rose as well, right? The literal title of this is the imitation of the rose, something that's so beautiful, but also kind of deadly. I mean, if you grabbed it, you know, you would hurt yourself and there would be blood, uh, but you would be holding this beautiful rose in a bloody hand. And that, that is something that is ugly and beautiful at the same time. And that's what makes her such a unique writer, I think, to all these other people. Is she'll take something and she'll use it differently than everybody else. And that's why I think we we love her so much. Well, we, we talk about how beautiful it is, but there's funny moments too. Like they had that quote, one order seemed to cancel the other as if they'd asked her to eat flour and whistle at the same time. That's funny. <laughs> like I'm sitting here reading this and I'm literally like, how would I whistle with flour in my mouth? I like what I... <laughs> Did you whistle too? Because I'm like, (laughs) I'm trying to do it. (laughs) Because I'm thinking, okay, if I had that mouth, how would I whistle? (laughs) Because I was trying to whistle while reading it. Whistle while you work. (laughs) Yeah, it it is highly entertaining. There's Hurricane Clarice earned her right as one of the stalwarts and greatest writers of all time. And not just Brazilian writers, one of the greatest writers of all time. And this was selected for our 2021 lot as potentially one of the greatest stories of all time. It's considered one of Brazil's greatest short stories of all time. Crypto, what do you think about that? Uh, I would I would agree with, I think, that statement that it probably could be top three greatest uh, Latin American Brazilian stories of all time just because of its message. And it, it speaks to you as an individual and says a lot about you as a person, what you'll get out of this. And a lot of times we read stories and we say, this is what the author meant. This is what you're going to get out of it. End of story. Where this one is so open and fluid. And I, I love that about this story. Uh, I would be hard pressed to say it's my personal favorite story of all time. But I think mm-hmm. that says something about me. That's because I'm a Civil War guy. So I'm going to, you know, lean towards, you know, Civil War stuff. I'm also a nerd and a sci-fi guy. So I'm going to love the sci-fi elements of stories. So that's going to draw to me. But for somebody that's living, you know, a life close to Lispector's, this easily could be your favorite story of all time because you're going to see yourself in that rose. You know what? I, I would say this this you've articulated well that this is not a mirror for us. This is not our lives, right? But this is a really, in my opinion, very good um, window into someone else's life. And there are moments in here about that complacency independency that I can see that in some people that I know. And that really rang home for me, it explained something about my life, the window of other people that I didn't really understand and couldn't put words behind. And I I don't even know if the words behind it are what made me feel it. It was the emotions behind the story that made me feel it. So definitely can see why this is considered one of the greatest short stories of all time. Highly recommended. If, if you enjoyed today's conversation, you know, we would love for you guys to comment down below. Feel free to leave like a rose emoji if you're not sure when you want to help us out. We're going to put a Clarice Lispector playlist down below if you want to check out more talks from her as we're going to go through more of her short stories and novels. Let's move into our subjective ratings. Crypto, what are you going to give this one? Uh, so on this one, I'm just going to give it an all around uh, nine for both on uh, in my enjoyment of the story and for the analytical. Because uh, I think, like you said, with the window, it when you use that analogy, most people assume that you can see perfectly through a window, right? But as we know, Lispector writes in this gray area 
What happens to an old, old window? Have you ever gone to like one of those old mm-hmm. farmhouses and the mm-hmm. window has been there for like 150 years? Because mm-hmm. the, the glass starts to kind of bleed down and you can't see through it perfectly anymore. And the image is blurry on the outside. But you also start to see a little reflection of yourself in this, although mm-hmm. be it a blurry one. So I think this is something that is going to draw you in and make you have feels and you can't ask for more than that from a story if it's going to give you some type of emotional uh, kickback. So solid nine from me. I'm going to actually not do an analytical rating at all. I just want to do an emotional rating on this one. I'm just going to go just for pure how much I enjoyed it. I'm going to go with a 9.5 on this one. This is one of those page turners for me. And it's not even like there was really plot. Like <laughs> it, was, it was like this woman that was, am I going to give this rose away or not? And I'm happy to be back home, right? Like trying to avoid anxiety. No plot. It was all in a character's mind, and I was just in love with with the situation. So overall, 9.5 for me, for my rating. What if Raskolnikov and Laura went and got drinks? Oh my gosh. That would be the greatest scene of all time. Well, guys. There's some anxiety inducing coffee. (laughs) If you guys enjoyed conversations like this and are looking for more Lespector talks, please feel free to hit that subscribe button. We post videos two to three times a week. If you are looking for more literature discussions like that, please make sure you hit that subscribe button. I am Una. Thank you for joining us in the conversation today. Peace out. Peace.